Good morning, family. Let's turn together, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we continue looking through, seeking to apply, trying to understand the glories of the gospel, particularly the glories of the gospel that empowered Paul to endure and suffer, I think things by and large beyond my comprehension, certainly beyond the comprehension of many of us. So let's read together, please, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 15. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's again pray, please. Lord, as Pastor Ben prayed earlier, we again plead for you on behalf of the families in Texas who are grieving a depth of grief that most of us cannot comprehend. Such wicked, senseless, useless violence against children is one of the reasons we look at this world and even many non-Christians look at this world and ask the question, where are you, God? If you exist, then how can these kinds of things be in your good world? Lord, there will be those who will perhaps lose what faith they have, so to speak. There will be others who will begin to seek faith. There are those who over the coming months and years find waves of overwhelming grief and sorrow and anger. And Lord, how somehow the death of that young man by a bullet or bullets, if that is the end and he has passed into unconsciousness and has passed into non-existence, somehow 
weighing his momentary pain of a couple of minutes and bleeding out and going into nothingness is not enough to account for the years of sorrow and grief that these families will go through. We do not believe justice has been done by those bullets. We do not believe that his passing into oblivion and unconsciousness is sufficient for justice. And so the things that we will hear this morning are the very things by which we can hope and look forward to that there will be a day, there is a day coming in which both the good and the wicked will be raised from the dead and will stand before Jesus, the perfect, holy, and righteous judge, and there will be a resurrection of glory and there will be a resurrection of condemnation. And that justice will be done and the exact terms of that and exactly how that will be meted out and for how long and to what degree, all of that, we are simply thankful that you are a God who knows all and keeps account of all, that no one is getting away with anything and ultimately nobody escapes justice. And so we pray Lord, not because we believe that you will act in the here and now in the way that we desire, in the way that many people are crying out for, but because one day you will come again, Lord Jesus, and raise all from the dead, including those little children and including the teachers and including this young man. in all things and ways that we can't comprehend will be made well. And the issues will be so adjusted that we will not have any remaining sorrow or grief. We will not be frustrated because justice has not been done. We will not be frustrated because people are getting away with wicked things. And so we Ask, Lord, for the faith and the hope to believe, Lord, the very faith that Paul talked about in, in the passage we've read, the faith that causes us to hope and to speak. Lord, we're also praying, as I've been praying this week, for a denomination that has hit, been hit by a torpedo. And I think of the thousands and thousands of faithful men and women who have loved children and loved one another who are on a denominational boat that has been exposed and evil has been exposed and names have been released and the horror and shock of abuse has been revealed and yet for everyone who has done this, there are thousands of others who are tethered to a denominational ship that appears to be sinking in many ways. And we plead for those faithful brothers and sisters. Likewise, some who are already teetering on the edge of losing faith. And who for them, it won't be the walking away of a denomination, but 
walking away from the church and from Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, would you please come? And if a thread of faith, true faith remains, would, Lord, you strengthen the weak knees and uphold the drooping hands? Lord, for those responsible, we cry again for justice to be done if it's not yet been meted out. We pray that the church would learn from our mistakes. We pray for the grieving victims and their families who still suffer trauma and go through counseling and will never in this life fully shake the difficulty of what they have suffered. We pray that you would comfort those who mourn, O Lord, that you would lift up the downcast, that you would strengthen those who are teetering. Or would you please, please show your mercy to our nation, to our world, when such senseless violence and abuse is exposed. And we recognize that we, we are a part of the problem. That human sin and humans who have rebelled against you, Lord, we are the ones who are full of violence, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, which one of us could stand here? Lord, if you should count our sins against us without Jesus, Lord, all of us would have a devastating end. And so we plead with you, we cry to you, O Lord, for mercy, for the fresh understanding of the gospel, of what Jesus has done that sinners can be made saints, that saints could be set apart and transformed and eventually glorified. We long for the day, Lord, when we will breathe a sigh of relief and look out on your world and be satisfied as we see your face in the new creation. Until then, Lord, help us not to lose faith. Help us not to lose hope. We cry in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are still in the section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What we know of is 2 Corinthians, which is likely 4 Corinthians for them in the least. He is giving a defense for his own ministry and the criticisms that have come against him, the difficulties. And in the previous section for the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Paul's focus on glory. And glory is used, particularly in the previous section, I think it was 11 or 14 times or something like that. So clearly he's thinking about glory. He's thinking about something that shines. He's thinking about a manifestation of God's transcendent glory in the world and how that works. And he's talking about the glory of Moses and their surpassing glory that's found in Jesus under the new covenant. So the, the whole image here is about light and about uh, effulgence is one of the old words and, and just the emanation of God's majesty and glory in the new covenant, especially the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now with all of this glory talk, 
we might ask the question, well, what does such a glorious ministry look like? I mean, you talk about glory and majesty and victory in our culture, and we tend to think big stages. We tend to think multi-million dollar albums and Netflix series that make billions of dollars. And when we talk about glory and what it looks like in our lives and culture, we tend to think of the fabulous, of the celebrity, of the amazing, of of, of the ones with the brightest, shiniest teeth and the the most uh, uh, excellent sculpting and and the most excellent ratings. But what what does glory look like under the new covenant? What is this victory look like, particularly in the life of Paul, who's uniquely called as an apostle to the Gentiles for this particular time? Does it look like success? Does the glory of Christ in the church in the first century and in our day and age look like success? And again, we're, we're just so used to success looking like a certain thing. Do we find Paul is successful? If so, then what does that look like? If not, then we've got something skewed with our perspective of success. Does Paul's life look like spectacular overcoming, a kind of uberman, a kind of superman of just, you know, what happened? Boom, and he just gets back up and is like, mm, bring it again. You know, he's, he's a Rocky coming back in the last round to take out his enemy. And is he just punching it through and somehow is just raised up at the end? Does Paul's ministry seem like a ministry of positive thoughts, impressive resilience, and magnificent success? Because it's all about glory. Paul's life and ministry, as a matter of fact, seems to be a contradiction to an idealized perspective of a glorious king's kingdom. I mean, if you followed Paul around, dragging behind him perhaps a cart of parchments, his body beaten, his friends not very impressive, going to these churches. And when you walk into his church conference, they've got people talking against him. They've got people criticizing him. They've got churches that are really messed up with theology and otherwise. And you you might follow Paul around for a little bit and go, I don't think that word means what you think it means, Paul. This just doesn't look very glorious. I mean, you got you got dust on your feet, and you've got scars on your back, and you can't even hardly see right from this eye disease that you have. And when you come into a place, they don't all applaud for you. There's no fancy band. There's no, what in the world? What do you mean glorious? How is this so? It seems to be a contradiction. Does the victory of Christ mean his followers will experience overwhelming and evident success in the world, or as the world accounts it? Are we to live a dreamlike confidence over our difficulties and just kind of soar over it all? Well, Paul gives us direction in this, in his own life, in the verses we look at this morning. First of all, let's look at verse 7, the display of God's power. So he's talking glory, glory, light, effulgence, brilliance, all of this that's surpassing, so bright that you can't even... Look at it, and it's so glorious, and now we see it in the face of Christ. And Paul says, let me tell you how this glory comes. You know how it comes in? It comes in a cracked, broken clay vessel. He says, we have this treasure. And there's some question about, what does he mean by this treasure? Does he mean the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the new covenant? Is he talking about the treasure of the new covenant ministry? 
and it doesn't seem to me to make a big difference. It's encompassing all of those things. But this glory, this treasure, this wonderful thing that brings grace to people and is the act of God towards sinful humanity, you know what we're carrying this thing around in? I mean, you think about how would you carry a glorious treasure where you're going to get it in an armored car if you need to protect it. You need something solid. You need something that is invulnerable to bullets and bombs and things like that. Or if it's a glorious thing you want to display, you're going to put it on a padded cushion uh, in a glorious thing with tassels and parade it through the streets. But that's not what God has chosen to put his treasure in. He's taken jars of clay. Now, jars of clay in the ancient world, it could be referring here to some of the small lamps. And the thing about these lamps or the jars of clay or what exactly he's, he's got in mind here, he doesn't tell us. It's just something made out of clay and it's some sort of thing that carries things. And it could be the lamp. It could be something else. The thing is, these were very cheap. And they were so cheap and so even fragile. I mean, you just drop one of these things, it will break. Like you, you drop this, it is not going to survive. It's, it's going to break. And the thing is, they are so cheap and so fragile. When one breaks, you throw it away. The ancient mounds of ancient garbage are filled with broken jars. I mean, you just, and you don't, there's no super glue. You don't fix them. They are so cheap. They are disposable, but they are also indispensable because you can't carry the thing around without the thing itself to put the thing in. So it's both disposable and indispensable. What Paul is saying here is that it is indispensable that the gospel and the ministry and the glory of Christ be, God has determined, indispensably bound up with us as human beings and people like Paul to carry this treasure. And if he's using the image of a jar that is an oil lamp for the lamp, for the light to be carried into the darkness, it has to be taken. You just don't carry oil in your hands and put a wick in there and carry it. It's got to have something. It's indispensable, but it is exceedingly disposable. And he says, this is, this is what God has chosen to put his treasure in. And God has a purpose in that. God didn't look out and go, well, I'd like to have an armored truck or I'd like to have a padded pillow with a, a fancy kind of cradle to carry it in, but I just can't find one. No, he intentionally chooses clay vessels to carry this treasure. And here's the purpose, Paul says. This is the reason the treasure is carried in the vessel. It is to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You understand if you have a clay vessel with oil in it and there's light in the room, you're not impressed with the lamp itself. You know that the lamp by itself doesn't have any light. It doesn't have any glory. It only carries it. And once it's broken, it's thrown away. And so Paul shifts the image here from glory to power and here, surpassing or super abundant power. He says, the reason God has chosen me and us as jars of clay is to show that we are worthless in one sense. We are ourselves useless, indispensable, but also disposable. 
And it's to show it in this way. Now he's going to tell us how it is that that is shown. He carries from the imagery to now his real life experience. How is it shown that the surpassing power is in the gospel and not in us or in himself? Verses 8 through 10, carrying the death and life of Jesus. Here's how. Now he's going to explain it. He's gone from using an image to now explaining it, expositing it, if you will. We are afflicted. The word here means to be crushed down and pressed like in a some sort of a press. He says, experientially, in our ministry, this is what we feel like. This is more than depression. This is more than having a, a blue Monday. This is more, this word means more than just a melancholic nature. This is, by his circumstances, Pressed and crushed where all of the vibrancy seems to be out of it. And when it's pressed this hard, you expect when you lift the press up from it to see it either completely obliterated or dead. He says, we are this. This is this is what our circumstances have done, have put us into the press. And you've seen some of those presses, perhaps on YouTube, where they'll put like balls and diamonds and all this stuff into these, you know, several ton things. I don't know about you, but I like watching those and seeing them in slow motion and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that's the thing here is that when, when you're done, that's the image here is when you lift the press back up, but here's what he says. We are hard pressed in every way, but we're not crushed. Somehow amazingly through Paul's circumstances, when the lift comes back up, when the press comes back up, there's still life there. And you just go, holy cow, how is this? I mean, I don't want to be gross, but imagine putting a small animal in one of those several ton presses. And then when the press comes up after everything has happened and you look and you go, and the little guy looks up at you and is like, what's up? Did that hurt? Yeah, it hurt. <laughs> but you're still alive. That is Absolutely amazing. That's what that's what Paul says. Our circumstances have crushed us or afflicted or, or hard pressed us, but we're not crushed. And the word there just means to be basically disintegrated and non-existent. And then he goes into the kind of the mental realm. And I think he's talking about physical affliction. He uses the same word in other places to talk about the physical affliction. Then he's talking about mental affliction, perplexed. And this means just to be to be totally confused and thrown out of sorts and, and having your mind like come in on itself and being, I mean, this is mental distress to the ultimate degree. And I'm sure a lot of that happens to Paul in prayer. I'm sure a lot of that happens to Paul as he thinks about his friends like Demas who will forsake him. I'm sure he is very perplexed when he has loved people, sacrificed for people, even been beaten for people, and then they have some kind of a petty complaint against him. Or they misunderstand, or somebody says something, and they're so ready, like the whisperer in the book of Proverbs. The words of the whisperer go down like pleasant morsels. And there's people in the Corinthian church, despite Paul's sacrifice, somebody said, did you hear about Paul? And they're like, no, what? <gasps> And he's perplexed. How? 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 Paul is absolutely perplexed and tied into a mental knot. But he says, but not driven to despair. In other words, something still holds that knot together for Paul. Then he goes on, persecuted. 
That's the standard word for persecuted. To be pursued by enemies. And somehow, though he's been persecuted by, it seems like everybody, including the church, he says, I'm not forsaken. As he's running away from those who are pursuing him, he looks over and he knows that God is running with him. God is present with him. When he is in prison, God is shackled in Christ with him. When he's shipwrecked on open waters and there's no hope of survival, he believes that Jesus is swimming with him. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down. And the, this word means pummeled repeatedly. Now think back to Rocky and when he is just, he's down and he's just had everything beaten out of him. And you just think, there's no way. I mean, you know, he's getting up, but... You just say, there's no way this guy's getting up. Paul says, struck down repeatedly to the point of being unable to get up. He says, but at the end, not destroyed. So what does Paul's ministry look like? It looks like affliction, perplexity, persecution, being struck down. And you add what other things he says in this letter. For instance, in chapter one, verse eight. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Despairing. Despairing of life. Like, that's it. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. I have the death sentence written on me. In chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, I had these daily pressures of anxiety. Remember Paul who says, don't be anxious about anything. Do you think Paul was ever anxious? Yeah, every single day. The guy that tells you don't be anxious, was he admits anxious every single day. The daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here, it's an anxiety that he thinks about the churches and the condition of the churches and the state of the churches. And his anxiety is like a crushing pressure on him every single day. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, he describes himself as being given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And this word means to pursue relentlessly without giving up any or easing up whatsoever. It means to be pummeled over and over and over again. Paul says, this physical affliction I had was being pummeled Over and over again. And then he goes to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, would you heal me? And there's no answer. And he says, Jesus, would you heal me? I mean it. And there's no answer. And so he asks a third time, Jesus, would you heal me? And Jesus says, that's enough. My strength is made known in your weakness. Paul says, well, then I'll have to boast in my weakness. And so this is the jar vessel that Paul is talking about. And it's being crushed, perplexed, persecuted, anxious, struck down. And somehow the thing's still holding together. (laughs) You're going, there's no explanation. It can't be the strength of this pot. I see all the cracks. I see all the shattered fragments. There's something internal, which is not a composite part of the of the pot itself. There's something in this actually holding it together through all of this stuff. And he says, that's the surpassing power of God. This isn't the the 
fortitude of the human spirit that helps people win game shows and go on long journeys and win survival uh, fitness stuff. This is not the, the fortitude of the human spirit. Paul is saying there is nothing explainable in who he is or what he's done. This isn't Paul's personality. This isn't just that Paul had grit and he was a go-getter and he was just being strong in himself and he was believing in himself. He's like, there's no explanation And God made me this frail and broke me into pieces to show that the fact that I still have hope and faith and still speak the gospel to people, that there's something of a surpassing power that dwells in me that is from God. And he says, as a matter of fact, and this this is what one commentator says, you know what we are? We are pallbearers of Jesus. You know, pallbearer is somebody who carries a dead body around. And that's what he says. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. It's like, really? So my body is an entombment in which we think of the living Jesus living in us. But no, the dead Jesus also lives in us as well. His death, right? Carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In our bodies, he says, And then moves on to verses 11 through 12. Why is this? How does this happen? How is this manifested? Why why is there, what is the outcome? He says, we're always caring about this death in this clay vessel, showing the surpassing value of the thing that holds us together despite any odds and every odd against us. He says, for we who live, we're caring about the death of Jesus, but we are also living. Here's part of that, the, the, the paradox of life and death in the Christian life. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So here, here's the paradox. Paul, Paul discovers death, 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 death. And every time there's death, there's life. It reminds me of what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, if anyone would... Desire to save his life, he should lose it. But he who loses his life for my name's sake will gain it. Unless you take up your cross daily, unless you die daily, you cannot live. So here's the paradox that the key, if you will, the secret is, how do I live? By dying daily. And for Paul, it was a call to nearly physically die multiple times. We'll talk a little bit in the application of what that means to us, actually. And so what he says is, so what you see happening in this jar of clay with the surpassing power of God in it, holding and presenting the the glory of Christ in the gospel. So what is working in us is death. What is working in us is death. But here's the thing. It works life for you. So when I die, it brings you life. Again, reminds me what Jesus says, unless this grain of uh, uh, wheat is the old translation, unless a seed fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul says, you know what this is? You know what my blood being spilt on the sand is? It's so I can take the gospel that people may live and the fruit is you. The fruit is you in you, the church, that I die, so death is at work in us, and we're dying, but, but it's not a senseless, useless death. It's a death 
that brings life to you. That's the manifestation, and that's the outcome of this death in this clay vessel in God's surpassing glory. In verses 13 14, faith and resurrection. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, like, okay, Paul, how does this work? And he brings it back to the issue of trusting reliance. I think faith, we, sometimes we think faith is kind of a blind trust or a blind belief. Sometimes we think of faith as like cognitive understanding of certain information. My favorite translation paraphrase of faith is trusting reliance. You, you can believe the apostle, Apostles' Creed and not have faith in God. You can cognitively say, I believe in these certain things, but that's different than trusting reliance on the thing or person that we believe. And so we have the same spirit of trusting reliance in God and the glory of the gospel and the glory he's going to talk about here. According to what has been written, and now he quotes Psalm 116.10, where the psalmist says in the midst of his own trials and affliction, I believed and so I speak. And the Septuagint puts it in a different verb tense. I believed and so I spoke. And Paul says, yeah, this reminds me of a verse that the psalmist got the psalmist through his stuff. And now that quotation comes to mind. And it's just the same as David and the psalmist. We trustingly rely and so we speak. What, 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 why does Paul continue? I mean, Paul could have just retired, y'all. At some point, enough is enough. I mean, he started all these churches and he's he's done all these things and and he's preached the gospel. At one point, he says, I have no more work here. And so maybe I'm going to go into another land. It's like, Paul, goodness sake, sit down, take a rest, go home, retire. He says, but my trusting reliance compels me to keep speaking. I believed and so I spoke. And so we believed, we trusting rely, and so we speak. Sometimes our failure to evangelize doesn't have to do with lack of knowledge or a lack of other things. It's our own lack of trusting reliance. Like, do we really believe and so speak? He said, so it comes down to this. Why, why do you keep speaking, Paul? Why do you keep telling people about Jesus? Why do you keep putting up with the church why, why, why do you keep taking these insults? Why do you keep taking these beatings? Why do you keep facing rejection? Why do you keep going through this stuff? And he would say, because I believe. I, I speak because I believe. I trust and rely, so I speak. Paul, what, what is it you're exactly believing and trustingly relying on? It's, Right here. Knowing. I believe knowing. Knowing what? This. That the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Excuse me. One of you's texting me. Stop it. No. You're not. Knowing that he who raised Jesus from the dead. What do we believe? We believe so we speak what? Because I believe that the one I know, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, will raise us also with Jesus. 
So you kill me, I'll be back. I'll be back like Schwarzenegger. I'll be back like Michael Myers. I'll be like, I'll, I'll, I'll be back, but better. I'll be back. I believe and therefore I speak because why? Because Jesus is going to raise us. The one who raised Jesus is going to raise us. What, what, is, what does it gain a man to lose the whole world uh, or to gain the whole world and let yet lose his soul? Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body and do nothing, but, just, but fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. And I believe it and therefore I speak because God told me to. But that's not the end. Because that, that, that would give some hope of why he would suffer physical afflictions. But what about, what about how the church has responded to him and, and the, the problems he has in the church and the people who have abandoned him and accused him and been treason? He said, but I know this, that, that Jesus will, or he who raised Jesus will also raise him from the dead and bring us with you into his presence. And he says this about the Corinthian church. Like my story's not over, your story's not over, but here's what I know, that once God has begun a good work, he's going to finish it in you. I don't know that he's going to get it all sorted out and we may not be best friends. We may not be reconciled in this life and you may not believe what I'm saying, Paul says. But here's something I know, that once God has worked and poured out his spirit and brought his gospel to a people, I have confidence in this, that you are a bride that has spot and blemishes and wrinkles, but the day's coming when you won't. And I'm going to be there in the presence of Jesus resurrected from the dead. And you know what? So are you. So it's relatively, not relatively indifferent. It's not my ultimate goal, Paul would say, to get you to agree with me or to get things sorted out, though I'm passionate about that. But ultimately, when things don't work out as it hadn't worked out in a lot of churches, I'm still confident that we're going to be there in the presence of Jesus together, resurrected. And God will complete that work in you as he will complete that work in me. And for that reason, you kill me, I'm coming back. If the church stays a mess, Jesus will perfect it one day and present us together with him. And what good news that is with the mess of the stuff that has been released this week. that churches in the name of Jesus have done and covered up and leaders have done such terrible, horrible, awful, wicked things. So why try? Why stick it with the church? Why? why? When there's so much hypocrisy, when there's so much betrayal, when there's so much wickedness, it's because we know that he who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us with, with Jesus together with his church. And he'll sort it out. And nobody's getting away with anything. He will sort it out. He will bring us together with you into his presence. chapter 5, verse 10, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
pastors, denominational leaders, men, women, boys, girls. We must all appear before the seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I don't know how to sort all that out. I'm not going to pretend to. But here's something I know. Whether good or evil, we will receive in the body everything that is due. Paul says, that's the reason I can labor on and work on. The purpose of it all, verse 15, for it is all. All of this, Paul would say, all of this is for your sake. Similar to what he says in Colossians 1.24, that I fill up in my body what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for your sake, the church. There's something lacking in the suffering of Christ for the sake of his church. It's what Paul said. Not his atoning work of the forgiveness of sin, but their suffering yet to be filled and fulfilled for the church to become what she should be. And so Paul could say, it is for your sake I'm suffering. Yes, the hope of the resurrection. Yes, the belief that we will be presented together. But he says, I'm doing this for you. For your sake. Paul could go home. Paul could retire. But the church would suffer. And specifically, I do this for you so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. One of the reasons God loves to spread his grace and his glory and save people is so that there will be a greater number of those who will thank him and worship him for his glory. So quickly, our application. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be tough enough. We're clay vessels. We're clay vessels. Cracked, broken, shattered, bruised, betrayed. And it's not for ourselves to hold ourselves together. It is not for ourselves to believe in ourselves. It is not for ourselves to have esteem about ourselves. Dignity, yes. Proper biblical esteem for what I am as an image of God and what you are, yes. But I don't have to somehow flap my own wings and get myself to fly by my own efforts of my own esteem because it's not me. It's the surpassing value of the glory of God in me created in his image. Paul's self-description is this, and I think we ought to be just as comfortable to use it to explain ourselves where it's appropriate. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck. How, How would you like this? I come and pitch to you, we're having this great conference. How to be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, despairing, anxious, harassed, and weak. In six easy lessons. Paul was honest about his brokenness. Paul, are you strong? No, I'm not strong. Have you got your mental acuity all together and you just, no, I'm perplexed most of the time. Sometimes I'm even despairing of life. So stop trying to carry that burden of presentation. Stop trying to carry the burden that I or my family, we've got it all together. Because the more we shine our clay pot, the more we're, 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 we're... neglecting to see where the value and the power is. 
And sometimes God has to break us to remind us where the power is, that it's not ourselves. God's power in us is what sustains us, not our own inner strength. And so what is to sustain us in the midst of discouragements? Anybody got discouragements recently? Any discouragements at all of any type? Failures? Any failures? I got some here. Frustration with church politics and what happens in churches. As I mentioned, cover-ups, power grabs, money-mongering, criticisms. What sustains us is our eschatology. Because as soon as we put our hope in the outcome of what we can do, we will be disappointed. But how do we keep doing? How do we keep loving? How do we keep seeking justice? How do we keep seeking to do the right thing? We keep doing that knowing that in the end, Jesus is coming back, will raise us from the dead, and everyone will receive in the body what they have done, whether good or evil. And for that reason, our eschatology prepares us, propels us forward. Eschatology is a fancy word for what happens at the end. It is for us to believe and act in the power of God, looking to the future resurrection and judgment, not in our present sight of things. We're going to see in the next section, we walk by faith, not by sight. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. That's, that's how we propel forward in faithfulness. We also see from this and by Paul's example, the church is not meant to be about power, manipulation, and control. It was never meant to be that. And yet church history shows an incredible amount of worldly power and manipulation and control. What the gospel and the church is to be about is loving service and, if necessary, suffering for the good of others. That's what Paul, in his example, gives to us. And doing that in spreading of the good news, of doing justly, of loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. This is true in sacrificial service in our evangelism. It's true in our discipleship of one another. I'm not trying to control you, manipulate you, or exercise power over you. I want to see you free and with life. This includes our service of others. It's not to get. It is to give and to lay down our life as Christ laid down his life for us. It is true in marriage where it's not about my self-fulfillment. It is about me loving as Christ has loved the church. In our parenting. In the frustrations. And the difficulties. And the disappointments. To parent, not by power, manipulation, and control, but with loving Christ-like service. In serving our community, in our worship, all of this is not about self-fulfillment, but Christ-fulfilled-ment. It's not about getting what I want, but displaying in this poor, broken, crushed clay vessel the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So we pray, Lord, that you would please give us help to 
as Paul puts it in Philippians to um, know you and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. That somehow when we die for the good of others and for your glory, somehow some mysterious alchemic way we live. And so please use your word to challenge us, use your word to shape us, transform us, and mold us more into your image. By the power of your spirit, we pray.